You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. Welcome to The Social Workers Radio Talk Show. I'm your co-host, Alyssa Lotmore. Today's going to be a little bit different than our normal segments as we are sharing a panel discussion that occurred as part of the UAlbany School of Social Welfare's Continuing Education Series. The workshop was titled The American Disabilities Act 30th Anniversary Panel, and it included Julia Duff, who is an LMSW, Shamika Andrews, a disability advocate, Cliff Perez, an MSW, and James McDonald, who has his MBA. Hopefully, you'll be able to get some great content from this workshop, and I want to thank our presenters again for coming on this panel and sharing their knowledge and expertise in the area of the ADA. Hope you enjoy. Leah Duff, and thank you so much for being here today with us to talk about the American with Disabilities Act that was passed 30 years ago. Um, I started working for the Spina Bifida Association of Northeastern New York when I was in my second year of my MSW program at SUNY Albany. And I started working here because I interned for Cliff Perez during my first year um, internship through SUNY Albany. So that's where I got into disability advocacy and services. And when I was interning there, we started doing disability awareness panels and Cliff, myself, and a few other folks from the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley would visit local colleges and raise awareness about different disabilities and access. And we did a few at SUNY Albany, so it's very full circle for us to come back and now highlight the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or as you will hear us call it, the ADA. Um, so each of our panelists today are going to present on different perspectives, but provide a really comprehensive overview about life before the ADA, its passage, and then how far we've come and really how far we still have to go for people with disabilities to have equal access and equal rights in society. Um, so again, thank you for being here, and I will pass it off to our first panelist, Cliff Perez. Good afternoon, everybody. And uh, first and foremost, let me thank Julia Duff for inviting me to participate in this uh, panel and at this momentous occasion to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the ADA and to publicly acknowledge what a fabulous job that she has been doing as executive director of Spina Bifida also. Anyway, um, just to give a perspective of how long uh, I've been doing this and what I've experienced, I was born in 1954, October 21st, so my birthday is coming up this Wednesday. I grew up at a time when there was no rights for people with disabilities. The first time any rights came around for people with disabilities was in the passage of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And what makes the Rehabilitation Act so momentous is that prior to 1973, it was always referred to as the Vocational Rehabilitation Act because it's, it's real and only function was to address vocational issues for people with disabilities. In 1973, something changed. They added a fifth title, Title V, which is where the famous, for us famous, Section 504 comes from. Famous because 504 is the foundation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. It is the foundation of all aspects of access for people with disabilities. 
it was one paragraph, basically. But it talked about the fact that no entities that receive federal funding shall discriminate against people with this, you know, against people on the basis of their disability or something to that effect. And um, that's the first time that people with disabilities get recognized. So, as I said, I grew up at a time when there was none of that. Um, it was a time of what we call the medicalization model existed, basically meaning that the medical model is what prevailed that meant that if you couldn't fix people with disabilities, then there was something wrong with them. And for the most part, they needed to be sort of put away so they couldn't be seen by society. So you had this paternalism attitude and you had institutionalization. Institutionalism. And so because of that, and the fact that I am legally blind, I was born legally blind, I went to schools uh, in institutions rather than in regular schools. Um, so as I said, in 1973, you get the Rehabilitation Act passed, you, you start seeing that society is addressing rights of people with disabilities for the first time, at the very least with, for entities receiving federal funding. We get a real momentum in the 70s, which is very important for the passage of the ADA. We get a real momentum in the 70s and the 80s of different disability laws being passed. This provides a momentum, I think, as a result also of what happened in the 60s for black Americans and other minorities, uh, primarily meaning women, women, which are not minorities as a result of um, the Civil Rights Act of 64, 65. Um, so all of this is a momentum moving forward towards addressing civil rights, which is sort of a, an irony in a civilized society because civil rights basically are laws that tell people how to basically treat other people with dignity, right? Um, but in any event, we still had nothing for people with disabilities from the point of view of all aspects of civil rights, because the Rehab Act only addressed entities receiving federal funding. So this momentum continued until 1987, 1988, when there was legislation passed by Congress called the Civil Rights Restorations Act. And this was a piece of legislation that basically told the Supreme Court as, as a result of a, a case that occurred a few years prior that said that money uh, any entity receiving money from the federal government in order for them to implement Section 504 meant that only that entity had to receive that money. So in other words, if another entity within the organization or the entire entity, like uh, a college, didn't specifically get the money, they didn't have to become, they didn't have to be accessible to people with disabilities. This is in the 1980s. Okay? So it took Congress to pass this legislation to basically tell the Supreme Court, no, you're wrong. That is not what we meant. We meant that if the entity received any money from the federal government, all aspects of their programs and goods and services must be accessible. This momentum led to language being brought to, the, to Congress to address civil rights of people with disabilities as a whole. It was draft, first drafted in a booklet in 1987 called Toward Independence. This booklet was provided to Congress. This led the foundation then for writing the Americans with Disabilities Act. So you get one version in 1989 that addressed many of the issues that we know in the 1990s version with a big exception which is in title four because the ada has five titles in title four has all this aspect for telecommunications and um communications with um people who are deaf but in the 1989 version there was a whole section there for people who are blind so that information would be provided in an accessible format for people who are blind and visually impaired 
but because there was no way to pay for this. Unlike telecommunications being paid for by everybody, everybody gets charged uh, a little bit more with their phone bills to pay for this service. There was no such thing for blind services. So that was taken out of the 1989 version so that the 1990 version, there's really not much for people who are blind other than the overall general aspect of access. And as I said, one of the important things about the ADA that led towards passage was just momentum. But it was also the fact that people with disabilities, regardless of their disability, united behind one issue. And that one issue was this civil rights law that we now know as the Americans with Disabilities Act. They all united together, regardless of their disability, all for this one purpose. So this combination of events is what led to the passage. I played a role in the sense that um, we provided testimony to Congress um, at the behest of the father of the ADA, Mr. Justin Dart Jr. We have the father of the ADA, which is Mr. Justin Dart Jr. And the ADA has two mothers, Pat Wright, who worked for the Disability um, Education and Defense, Defense Fund, DREDA, Disability Rights Educa Education and Defense Fund, and uh, Elizabeth Savage, and I forget what organization she was. But they are the mothers of the ADA. Um, and so they went around the country um, collecting testimony to show Congress that, yes, people with disabilities were experiencing tremendous discrimination and lack of access into all the goods and services that society provided for everyone else. Um, and we, par we participated in this. We collected, uh, we held public forums here in Albany uh, the uh, Desmond Americana recorded it, had hundreds of, a few hundred people come and provide testimony, and we provided that to Congress, which is how uh, uh, I got an invitation along with thousands of other people with disabilities to attend the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act on July 26th of 1990. So that's just to give you an idea of what things were like prior to the ADA and what led to the ADA, and uh, I'll pass this on to Julia at this point for, for her to take it from here. All right, thank you. Thank you, Cliff. <laughs> and thank you for, uh, I know how much you could have shared on this topic and you could really do a whole panel yourself. So thank you, that was really informative. And next up we have Shamika Andrews. Hi everyone, I'm Shamika Andrews. Uh, I am a disability advocate and consultant um, so I was born in 1978, um, prior to, uh, the ADA, my life, uh, the majority of my childhood, um, was spent, um, in an inaccessible apartments, um, where I had to be carried up and down, uh, stairs. Um, because there was no accessibility in my neighborhood, in my home. I didn't have a wheelchair at this time. Um, so I got around my apartment through crawling um, up until the age of uh, about 12. Um, so we had no, we had no curb cuts in the neighborhood. Plus, um, because the schools in our neighborhood were not accessible, I had to go to school um, an hour away from my house. So I didn't 
I didn't get to play with the kids in my neighborhood. I didn't um, get to go to school in my neighborhood. All of the things and all of the services that I needed were hours away from my neighborhood. So um, this was uh, caused a lot of problems and I dealt with a lot of um, depression and things during this time because I was very isolated um, because there was no accessibility during this time. Um, we didn't, and even uh, with the passing of the ADA, I remember we moved into our first accessible apartment. Um, they had put all of this uh, consideration into the inside of the apartment, but uh, the city didn't think about the outside of the apartment and there were no, they built this beautiful new building and home that we had, and but there was no curb cuts. There was no way for me to actually go anywhere from the front of, of my house. So I remember um, it took us about three years um, to get the city to actually put curb cuts into our, our in our neighborhood. So um, that was the for my first experiences with advocating for um, accessibility. And, and there's still, um, you know, lots of neighborhoods that are, are like that still to this day, where they don't have curb cuts, or there's issues with, um, you know, streets and the condition of streets. And I know, you know, at the end, when we all worked at the Independent Living Center, we, we did a lot of, of work on that and, and things like that. Um, also, you know, like I said, as far as, you know, classrooms and being integrated in the classroom, I spent the majority of my time um, uh, up until high school in one classroom with a variety of people, um, that had various disabilities, most more severe than I had. Um, so, but they put us all in this one classroom uh, where they put, you know, people with disabilities and you got your therapies and you got your, you know, whatever um, right there in the one classroom. Um, I didn't um, start, you know, going into mainstreaming classrooms until, uh, you know, my last year of like middle school. Um, so that that was a different uh, experience as well, you know, being integrated and, and for the first time and other children and other students not really um, understanding, you know, who I was or why I was there or, you know, because they didn't have experience going to school you know, with other children that, that had disabilities. So that, that was um, difficult um, at times um, because there were a lot of questions about who I was. And, and at that point, I was spending a little bit more time um, outside and in the neighborhoods and stuff. And I remember often because my siblings, I have three siblings, um, all grew up in our neighborhood. Um, and went to school in our neighborhood. And I remember there were times where I actually sat outside um, with my siblings and their friends would come along and they'd be like, who is that? 
and they'd say, this is my sister. And she's like, I've never seen her before. And so like, that was like the big reaction because up until that point, like I said, I spent the majority of the time in the house. So nobody saw me in the neighborhood, nobody. And only time I left the neighborhood was to go to school. So school um, was really my outlet, um, you know, because I was so isolated during that period of time. Um, so it, it really, you know, the passing of the ADA and making things starting to come a little bit more accessible in my life really um, gave me a lot of opportunities uh, to be more active and to be, uh, you know, to explore more, to, to travel, to do, do the things that I am able to do, uh, you know, now and, and be as active. And once I did uh, go to graduate high school, I got my first power chair for the first time. That was when um, really I was able to, you know, get accommodations in the classrooms and um, really, uh, you know, like in college, they were able to move my, my classes to, because the main buildings were not accessible still at that time. So they were able to move my classrooms I had that at accommodation as well once um, the ADA uh, was passed. So, so those things things became a little bit more um, accessible to me um, as I, you know, graduated high school and college. Um, but unfortunately, even though I I was able to go to college and was able to go um, and participate. Um, I wasn't able to participate in my college graduation um, because the place where they had it was also not accessible. Um, so even though I, I went through, you know, my years of college, like everyone else, I had to uh, sit in the audience to receive my diploma um, and was not able to go across the stage like everyone else. Uh, luckily, this was my um, first um, stint at professional advocacy. And after that year, they had built the school, moved um, the graduation. So they are now in a fully accessible uh, building, which I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, and like to say that I had, you know, something to do with that. Um, so that was kind of my, uh, you know, experience with getting into advocacy, personal and professional. Um, so, and like I said, there are still lots of work that needs to be done um, with the ADA. And there's lots of, you know, misconceptions out there as far as the ADA are concerned. I know one of the things that people like to bring up to me is, you know, the thing of like automatic doors, for instance. And these are one of the things that people don't realize is not actually covered by the ADA. And I know that um, Jim, the next speaker is going to talk a little bit more about, about, you know, things that, you know, people may think 
are part of the ADA, what we we'll call, you know, myths. We'll talk a little bit more about that as well. So. Uh, awesome. Shamika, I think you touched on like a few really important points. And, you know, for one, you know, when you talked about life before the ADA and then after, you know, every sentence started with, I was able, you know, nothing about you changed, but your environment changed and it opened all these doors for you to access things that we, you know, all take for granted um, or, you know, just should have access to. And, you know, having a graduation ceremony where everyone could attend except one person versus choosing an accessible venue where everyone could attend, um, you know, it's, it's that mindset and, you know, going back to what Cliff touched on, the medical model um, of disability and getting, getting the conversation and language to change around that. Um, another thought I had when you were speaking too is um, it's almost, you know, when we talk about even curb cuts, I remember when I was an intern at the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley and I didn't know what a curb cut was. I didn't know it had any significance in society for people with disabilities, I thought, oh, this is like a nice way to just get off the road. Um, and as someone who doesn't live with a disability, I think that's what people think of. I'm wondering if you guys can actually sort of explain the significance of some of those accessible features we see in society. Um, even, you know, like when you're at a stop, you're going to cross the street and you hear the noise go off, um, what the curb cut does and how that helps you. Um, if we could touch a little bit on that and then transition into our next speaker, I think that'd be great. Yeah, um, well, before I go on that, I saw that Cliff um, unmuted himself, so I didn't know if he wanted to add before uh, I, I Don't go, you go for that. Okay, so one of the things that I wanted to mention, you know, you mentioned curb cuts and people not really understanding, the, you know, the significance of that. And, and one story I like to always tell, um, is when there's snow. And a lot of times you might, as you're going along your neighborhood, you might see people with disability, people in wheelchairs specifically, um, in the middle of the street. And a lot of times this will anger people in cars because they don't quite understand why this is happening. Why aren't you on, why aren't you on the sidewalk? Why aren't you on, uh, you know, why are you in the middle of the street? <laughs> Um, so the thing about this is because, you know, especially when there's snow on the ground, um, a lot of cities, um, do not clear, uh, snow as they should, or there may be some businesses that will clear snow and some that don't. So, if you're driving along a street or on a neighborhood, like I often do and other people, you will choose to go in the street because most of the time the street itself is clear because that's what they focus on when they are clearing uh, you know, the snow. They're making sure it's not in the street. Um, and so it's basically, this is for, even though you see it as a danger, it's actually, people consider it safer to be in the street than to be on the sidewalk. And that's why you'll see most, you know, or like a lot of things, another thing that's happening um, here in this neighborhood where I live 
is they're actually working on the sidewalks, you know, putting in new sidewalks. So they're ripping up sidewalks. So again, you have no choice, but to, if I'm going about my day and I don't know that that's happening ahead of time, I have no choice but to go in the street. Um, so I think that, that that's one thing that I just wanted to mention because a lot of that comes up very often is, you know, cars honk at you and, and they don't understand, you know, they say, get on the street, what? get on the sidewalk when they don't completely understand why you're, you're doing that. So. And just to add to that, I, I actually always uh, myself walk, walk in the street during the wintertime because the streets are taken care of, right? And they're clean and they're clear and it's just much easier to walk than walking on a sidewalk, hitting maybe a patch of ice that maybe I didn't see and uh, I think you know the rest. So, um, yeah, it's actually safer to be on the street. My thing is, you cars need to watch out for me. I'm a pedestrian. I got the right of way. That's the way I see it. So, the other thing I wanted to point out is, um, is you re remember I said that I went to school in institutions for really all of my school except when I went to college, unless, you know, you want to call college an institution, which it is, but that's another whole thing. Anyway, you recall that Shamika said how when she went to school, even though it was quote unquote integrated, wasn't integrated because she was in one class with other people with disabilities. So we go from putting people with disabilities all in one institution to moving them and having this illusion that somehow we're being integrated and then putting them all in one room because God forbid they should be seen with uh, non-disabled students because believe me, that had been the attitude in our society for most of the previous century. Um, and Shamika is an example of this progression towards the end of it that you would put some people with disabilities all in one classroom and keep them away from everybody else. So that's the other thing I wanted to point out. Yeah, and, and also to that, if I can just add, you know, like you said, this, this, um, this idea that people, people still believe and there's attitudes that we, that's, what, that's what we should do, that we should all be in one classroom and we should be all together and we should be, you know, like I, I often, you know, like on the bus. And so I'll say, you know, there's issues on the bus. Like if some people see me getting on the bus, the, you know, one thing they'll say is, well, aren't there special buses for you people? And it's like, uh, what? <laughs> or they'll get upset that you're on the bus in general. And they say, well, I have places to go as if I don't have anywhere to go. And I just, got on decided to get on the bus to piss you off today because i have nothing else better to do that's that's why i did it you know so it's, i could go on about that but um i won't do that but but like you said it's the, those attitudes and i think that's also the an important part of you know the progression of these things is the attitudes of the people in society because if people don't think you deserve to work or go to school or do any of these things that affects the process of moving forward. I think the attitude is so important. And unfortunately, I see in so many situations where people do have to pull on the legislation to be heard and just say, well, you know, this is, you know, in the ADA, 
to make people believe that people deserve access and um, you know, to do things that everyone does and have the same experience as everyone does. Um, so those stories, like you said, you could go on because they don't end. And that's probably the biggest stigma that the spina bifida community and the disability community in general face is just raising that awareness and advocation, advocacy and education are two of the biggest ways to get there. Um, and I'm glad you guys touched on um, the you know education piece as well and your experience in schools. Um, I was hoping you would go back to that cliff because it made me think about your experience. Um, the other thing I just wanted to touch on quick too was I know one of my first projects as an intern at the Independent Living Center was to you know, figure out if Troy had an ADA guide and a plan for addressing inaccessibility in the city of Troy and working with an ADA coordinator. Um, Cliff, I don't know if you have, you know, any insight on that or what, you know, that project when you assigned it to me, um, how these cities should be handling inaccessibility and who that point of contact should be. Well, all cities, uh, after a certain size of about uh, 50,000 citizens um, should have the at least begin the process, which is what we call an ADA evaluation plan, to start well evaluating their city for accessibility, um, and then they should look into hiring somebody or shifting somebody's position. I mean, they really should hire somebody, but most cities have just been shifting responsibility to another person. Um, as their ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act coordinator. So that would be the person, if there was an issue of lack of access within the city of some kind, whether it's physical access, whether it's access, like let's say to their public uh, it, it, uh, information or public events, uh, even council meetings should be accessible to the public. That includes people with disabilities. They would take that issue up with the ADA coordinator. And when Julia began this process at our center. We actually finished that whole thing after Julia started it, so that a, that City of Troy does have an ADA plan and it does have an ADA coordinator. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I even think about government hearings and not having a sign language interpreter. You know, this legislation. Um, has been around 30 years now. That's why we're here to celebrate it. Um, but there really is still a long way to go. And on that note, I will pass it along to our third panelist, Jim McDonald. Hi, everybody. Boy, after the first two presentations, it's absolutely fantastic. Cliff, thank you so much for giving us a, a whole story about different legislation and the other information that's extremely valuable. And Shamika, thank you so much for sharing uh, that information, your own personal stories and you've done a fantastic job uh, in, uh, in overcoming all these things. Um, I had, uh, when Julia had asked me to, to, to speak a little bit about this, she was asking me about um, the uh, kind of my life before ADA and my life after ADA. And um, again, I was uh, also similar to Shamika, I was born with spina bifida. Uh, I'm of course a lot older. Um, and uh, the degrees in which people can be impacted by spina bifida can uh, very dramatically. Obviously, I, my situation was nowhere close to the challenges that Shamika had to overcome. But one thing that is uh, kind of interesting about that, and I think maybe it goes on to a kind of a broader issue, and that is aging 
uh, with disabilities. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I played sports. Uh, I kind of didn't really know. I know I had some issues with like braces periodically, but I kind of didn't even know that I really had a limp until the the invention of the video camera, I guess. And all of a sudden, I was seeing pictures being taken, videos being taken. I said, wow, I have a pretty pronounced limp. I hadn't really realized that. And then as I got older, uh, things became more and more challenging. Uh, all of a sudden, I... I, um, I guess I was walking around Manhattan quite a bit and somebody stopped me and they said about whether I needed some help. I never realized that was the case either. So you kind of put these things out of your mind. And then um, then I became how to use a cane. And uh, then cane wasn't working anymore. So now I'm actually using crutches at this point. And I have a wheelchair in the car because apparently and occasionally I'll have to uh, use, uh, uh, use the wheelchair. And I have to use the wheelchair on occasions. There's a few things that I became aware of uh, when I went into using, again, the crutches and using the wheelchair, was the uh, challenges of doors. Somebody had brought that up. And people don't really think about, you know, the doors and the challenges of getting out of doors and the idea of uh, putting an um, uh, electronic door opener and how handy that door opener can be. And I... I um, I teach in two different colleges. I used to teach at a third college, which is, had gone out of business. They made accommodation for me, allowing me to park in an area where nobody else could park. Again, it's the idea of reasonable accommodation. What could they do? It was an old stone building. They couldn't really put any elevators in or do a lot with it, but uh, they could do what would be a reasonable accommodation, as the word is used, uh, that it's okay, you don't have to park in the handicapped spots. You can actually park right next to the door. We'll even let you do that. And that was an accommodation. I had another uh, college uh, where um, uh, they didn't have an automatic uh, door opener initially. And um, I was in the wheelchair and I was kind of struggling to get through. And uh, all of a sudden, the next time I came there, they put up an automatic door opener. They didn't even even think about it. Basically, it was kind of like they, I had mentioned it to them, and then bang, there it was. So uh, that was uh, one of the uh, one of the colleges that I used. I want to uh, mention that way being Maria College. So I may, may be familiar with that. And they did that one auto, just automatically on, on their own, which is great. But I think as what's happening, and I think the challenges that I think I'm hitting, maybe some things with the uh, with people that uh, have disabilities, and and maybe the ADA is as, as we've gotten older, is that the challenges have gotten older, and I think that the population getting older, we're really dealing with, I think, larger and larger numbers of people that particularly have these challenges. And some of this is like some of the, the um, grandfather issues that uh, uh, were put into place and, and buildings felt, well, they were old enough and they didn't have to make these changes because the changes would be too expensive. It goes back to this concept or the, the term reasonable accommodation. You know, what does that mean? Um, and uh, to, to make changes, uh, businesses to widen uh, bathrooms and put bars in, widen doors, these types of things. You know, uh, you know uh, what it, what it considered a reasonable combination, and and things that um, you know, apartment buildings too. The, the terms sometimes that they would use like uh, accessible, handicap accessible. Um, the uh, not even mentioning where I live, but one of the kind of the, the points that I have on that is that, you know, the ramps and sometimes dealing with the, with the upgrade of ramps, they say, okay, there's a ramp. You can use the, uh, you can get a wheelchair up a ramp. Well, I'm a pretty strong individual. And, 
it's a struggle to get, uh, if you don't have a electric wheelchair, it's a struggle to, to manually get up that ramp. And people really kind of think about it. And you also look at um, aging populations and, and the need, I know sometimes there's the criticism, sometimes that people abuse handicap parking and handicap stickers, but um, you know, with the regulations not really uh, spelling out how many handicap they spell out how many. I'm sorry. They spell out how many handicap uh, spots you need per overall parking spots, but it's really pretty small number. And um, so, uh, 100 four spots out of 100, and maybe there has to be relooked at. So, so I guess the area where I think we're kind of going on this is the fact that you do have people that have. Um, They've had and, and struggled through disabilities. Again, I, in a case for me, I mean, uh, what was it like before the ADA was passed? I really didn't notice much before. Um, but uh, as I've gotten older, I've become uh, it's become harder and harder, and we really need a lot of these accommodations. And I think that it's um, they passed the act in, in 1990, um, but I think they have to realize that the uh, with the aging population. And um, the uh, the fact that this is going to become um, more and more of a uh, of an issue uh, kind of going forward, uh, be on the lookout for the aging population. And so I don't know if anybody has any comment on that one, but uh, I guess that's what I'm really kind of focusing on: realizing that these doors are an issue, ramps are an issue, parking spaces are an issue, some of these other things that we basically kind of deal with. Jim, and, you know, great point, because, um, you know, what he touched on, too, is that I think everyone's definition of accessibility can be different, and once you live with that disability and you experience it, you learn, okay, it might look accessible on paper, or, you know, to you, the apartment building owner who had it assessed, and they said, yep, it's accessible, um, you know, really having an understanding for yourself and being able to say, this is this is what's taking place. It's It says it's accessible, but because that, that but usually comes into the conversation whenever you talk about accessibility or a site visit is almost always necessary for any event, any program, um, any, any experience you want to have if you're living with a disability. You know, you do have to do that visit and just assess for yourself because you can't always trust the person on the other side of the phone. Um, you know, another, another piece of what Jim said that really stuck out to me was aging with a disability. And I think when we talk about accessibility, we forget that there's so many different populations who who benefit from accessibility. And that's something, you know, I've learned that, you know, I can get up a ramp the same way that someone using a wheelchair can get up a ramp, yet we continue to insist on stairs. Um, and that, you know, that goes for like, you know, my grandpa, if I was running errands with him, he needed a ramp. So at some point in our lives, we could all experience an injury or just the physical effects of aging pregnancy, um, anything that could affect our mobility and require or benefit from some accommodations for accessibility. Um, so it's not a special treatment. It's something that it works for you and it works for me. It's the most inclusive um, approach, yet we continue to make it uh, a special side, um, you know, something that, oh, we'll do this for you when really if we did it accessibly, everyone would be included. I don't know if um, Cliff or Shamika want to touch on that. I, I definitely, um, I, I, I think 
the one thing that I wanted to touch on was this thing of, you know, like you were saying, a lot of places you go places like, well, we're, we're ADA compliant or we're what, and, and what I always like to say is accessible doesn't necessarily equate to usable, you know, yes, maybe you're accessible under the law, whatever the law says, whatever. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be usable for me or for Cliff or for anybody that is going into your particular business, facility, institution, what, whatever the case may be. So I, I think that that uh, presents a lot um, of an issue too, because people will often say, and like you said, even that, um, you know, I always like when I call up certain places, um, you know, and I say, are you accessible? And they say things like, well, sort of. And it's like, what does that mean? It, it's, it's, there, is, there is no sort of, there is no kind of, there's not a little bit, it's either yes or no. Or and they say, I think, well, we only have one step. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm in a power chair. So whether you have a half a step, uh, a one step, two step, doesn't matter, you're not accessible. <laughs> so it's, it's just funny sometimes. Like you said, you actually have to physically go there to the space because, you know, I've had lots of conversations with people about accessibility prior to going places and you get there and it's like, you honestly have no clue what you're talking about because, you know, but anyway, that presents its own challenges because as a person that doesn't drive, it's not like I can just, you know, hop, skip and a jump to just go someplace and do a site visit every time I'm going somewhere new, but that's what I have to end up doing a lot of the time. And that's just physical access. And access really is much more holistic than physical, obviously. Access also uh, it has to do with whether information is accessible to people who are blind or whether people, people who are deaf or have some other disability. Um, so think of the problems we're having just with physical access, which is objective and empirical, if you will. So, and then imagine from there for all those other disabilities that are not quite so quote unquote visible, how difficult it is. It's only been until fairly recently that I've been able to access medical information because the medical industry, God forbid, should provide their information to people who are blind in an accessible manner so we could actually read the information we need to read and know about our health. Only recently that has become accessible because out of their great wisdom, they decided, hey, we can put some of this stuff in digital form. Now you can access it on your phone, which is what I've suggested to them for quite some time. Um, but in any event, so it's that kind of progress that we're making, but it's still little by little. And even in terms of that ramp thing that Jim mentioned, you know, perhaps they weren't complying with the law because the ADA is actually very specific about ramps. Ramps have to be um, what they call one in 12, which means for every height of one inch, you have to have about one foot of ramp. So if you have one foot, you have to, you have to have your ramp needs to be just as long. Um, so, and it has to have, depending on how long it has, it gets, it has to have certain sections where it tapers off and it's even so you could rest. So, they probably weren't doing their ramps right. As Shamika mentioned, 
there's access, there's accessibility, and then there's accessibility. So, so that that I just wanted to make sure that you understood also the whole holistic aspect of accessibility, which what the ADA tries to do. And always keep in mind that the ADA, ADA is a framework. It is a plateau. It is this is where don't go any lower than this. God forbid we should take it upon ourselves and go beyond that without being told. But the idea of the ADA is, look, let's just stop here. If you can do better, great. So that's where we're at. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's like, like, like you said, it's like the bare minimum. And it's always nice. Like Jim, you know, mentioned the school, you know, that put in the, the, the doors and whatever, and, you know, that will go above and beyond just, okay, this is what the law says. This is what the book says. And uh, other thing that I wanted to mention as far as accessibility, because, you know, Flip mentioned, you know, there isn't one disability, you know, and if you're accessible for me, doesn't mean you're accessible for Cliff. Or you. And, and Jim mentioned, we both have the same disability. And, you know, when we were, you know, the example I like to think about is when we all were working at the Independent Living Center, there were five of us, I think, that all had spina bifida, okay? But each one of us had different aspects and were affected in different ways. So accessibility for each one of us would look different. You know, some of us, you know, like Jim, you know, says he uses a cane. I use a power chair. You know, we have other other people with spina bifida that don't use any kind of uh, device at all. So even though we all have spina bifida, it affects us all differently. So accessibility for one of us doesn't necessarily fit accessibility for all of us. And I think a lot of times when people are looking at things around uh, people with disabilities, they want to find this one way and put it all in a box and label it all and and just and that's just not the way life is. You can't just say, oh, okay, well, we had people in wheelchairs here today, so this is what they said they need. So you know that's that's what everybody needs. <laughs> you know that's not that's not the way it works. And I think that's what people are trying to like look for is, you know, you know, when it comes to the whole conversation of which I also hate is about words. Well, what do I call you people? And it's like, what? <laughs> Anyways, don't get me, um, I can't <laughs> go on and on about things, but. I was about to say, that's about the only generic rule that there is, that is that no disability is the same regardless of the disability. It's no different among blind people as well or any other disability. So that's exactly correct. And I think it's, you know, really full circle to where we started with Shamika's conversation today about curb cuts. And, you know, the ADA did make a difference because for a while, people with disabilities voice might not have been heard because they didn't have a seat at the table because they couldn't get into the building where the table was having the conversation. Um, we still as a society have a habit of making decisions for people without including the people those decisions are impacting. Um, so the ADA has at least opened doors so that it's easier for people with disabilities to have a seat at the table to advocate and continue to make, you know, huge strides like every single person here talked about with increasing access. 
um, for where they are. And maybe it starts with two, you know, one ramp that's pretty terrible and two accessible parking spots, but it opens the door and we're having better conversations about inclusivity and accessibility because of the ADA. And it, it gave a really big platform. Um, the one last thing I really wanna touch on is um, most people do have access to Netflix. And if I can recommend one thing that will really take this panel and make it incredibly real for you as well, I would watch Crip Camp. Um, you know, Judith Human talks a lot about the passage of the ADA, the Capitol crawl, um, the way people with disabilities were treated um, and just the different real life issues that people have and what passing that le legislation took and what it meant. And I highly recommend it if you haven't watched it yet. By the way, I'm at the end of that. I, at the very end of script camp, they 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 span the they they scan the audience. Remember, I told you I was there. Um, you have to keep in mind is like anything else in our society, the disability movement has basically been a white movement. All right. So when they span when they scan the audience, there's a number of white people except me. There's one dark spot and the blitz there in the middle, so I'm easy to spot when they scan the audience. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Bonus points for whoever can find Cliff. <laughs> Be like, where's Waldo? Be where's Cliff? <laughs> yeah. That hard, just a black spot in the, in the white. He's yeah. in a spot. Well, uh, and nothing negative by that, by the way. It's oh. just reality. That's all at the time. Absolutely. Well, thank you, you know, each of you for sharing your perspective and being a part of this panel with me, the Spina Bifida Association and all the other associations and you know professional places you guys represent today. And I think if we wanna open it up for questions, that would be great. You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany.